We are continuing on in the book of Titus. Uh, as you're turning to Titus chapter 2, um, I, I want you to think for me, think with me for a minute. What if I was trying to find the best piano teacher in Memphis? What would I go about doing? And, you know, if I was going about that and uh, I was trying to find out who, who's the best, who's, who's the, the supreme example of a piano teacher in Memphis, there are a lot of things you, you might look at. You might look at, okay, well, what are their degrees? You know, what type of degree do they have? What type of education do they have in music? What, how have they studied? How have they done this? Uh, you might think about uh, books. What books have they read? What books have they written? Uh, but ultimately, those things don't matter too much. If you want the best piano teacher in Memphis, what are you eventually going to have to look at? The type of piano players they're producing. Eventually, you, you want to sit down. I think we just lost. Oh, we got a finicky mic. Eventually, you've got to sit down and say, okay, what type of players are they producing? And, and one of the things we need to realize as, as we study the book of Titus, the true just as the true proof of great piano teacher is in the player, the life of a servant of God reflects something of the character and the nature of the God they serve. The, the activity of the servant says something of the master. The activity of the redeemed says something of the redeemer. The activity of the saved tells you something about the Savior. With that in mind, look with me as we begin to look at Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 together this evening. Hear now the word of the Lord. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, up dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that any opportunity that, that any opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Let's just bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that your word would be a light unto our feet. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us in your word today. Lord, we ask for the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written to work in our hearts that we might find right application of your word. Lord, we ask these things not because we 
deserve it, but because you are a gracious and generous God. We ask that we might know these things not just to accumulate knowledge or information about you, but that we might grow in faith, hope, and love towards you, knowing you better today than any day before. We ask all this in the beautiful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. This passage begins with an exhortation from Paul to Titus, exhorting him uh, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that word sound, uh, it's translated sound uh, in my version of the Bible, uh, is a, a word that really has at its root the idea of healthy. Uh, teach what accords with healthy doctrine. A little later on, he'll use the same word uh, in exhorting older men to be sound, to be healthy in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. In, in one way, I think of this passage as, as having a kind of health checkup. Paul's exhorting Titus and, and saying, I, I want you to teach things that accord with sound doctrine. It's, it would be as though a, a doctor comes up to you and says, I, I want you to live a lifestyle that accords with good health. Now, what, one of the things we, we see from this, we, we begin to see from this passage, is that sound doctrine or healthy doctrine might be a little bit different from what we naturally think of when we think of the idea of doctrine. Because with, with this introduction, what would you expect to follow after it? If he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine, you would expect something to be said or, or promoted that's heavily theological, wouldn't you? That, that has some of the finer points of the faith presented. But, but that's not what follows. What, what follows is exhortations to have a type of identity that reflects itself in the character and the nature of our actions. What, what follows is actually quite practical. So, so maybe our conception of what doctrine is is a little bit off. Doctrine's a, a word that's used a lot and thrown out a lot. Doctrine's a word that's used a lot and thrown out a lot, but we don't always define it. We don't always look at it in a correct way. And, and I want to give you a, a, a general definition of doctrine, and then I want to look actually at a more specific definition of doctrine with you. And, and the general definition, as I said, doctrine's a word, and, and they th it gets thrown around a lot, but sometimes you don't think, well, what does that word mean? Doctrine... Simply put, is the content of teaching. Doctrine is the content of teaching. So that, that's pretty simple. But now we've got to correct something else, because most of us have a bad view of teaching. When we think of teaching, what do you think of? You think of sitting at a desk, somebody writing on a blackboard, and you writing on a, on a pad of paper, and then later on you're given a test, and you've got to circle numbers or write something out, and that's what we think of when we think of teaching. But there's a, a reason why I gave you the piano illustration earlier. Because that's more the type of teaching I want you to think of. 
not, not the abstract, but the practical. And although you, you might have some time in front of a blackboard or writing or given some written instructions in a piano lesson, that's not the main objective. The main objective of that is to equip you to play the piano. Uh, currently, a lot of our education system is uh, geared around equipping you to take tests. But the type of teaching that's mentioned here is uh, a training and equipping. So it, let, let's tweak the definition to, to give us a little more accurate view. So uh, doctrine is the content of teaching, or more specifically, the content of training and equipping. Now, as you read the Bible, is that what you're thinking? Or are you thinking, how does this train me and prepare me to be who God has called me to be? I, I think a lot of times we come to the Scripture with the wrong disposition. We might be looking for information or inspiration. But are we desiring God? Are we desiring to become who He has called us to be? Are we wanting this to equip us or, and transform us to become what He intends for us? With this definition of doctrine, we see doctrine shapes who we are and what we do. We've talked about this before in the book of Titus. Titus is, is a book that's geared a lot around who your God is. In fact, after we get into this section, you know, we usually start with the why. After this section, Paul is going to describe why this type of lifestyle is, is so important. And he's going to say it's because Christ has come revealing His grace, and Christ will come revealing His glory, and that we, in between the grace that has appeared and the glory that will appear, are to live faithful lives in the hope of His return. It says who God is and what God has done transforms the way we live because it transforms our destiny. Knowing that we have a, a different destiny should change our activity. We, we heard that some in, in, in Ralph's story. He said, when I, when I thought you had to do good to get better, you know, I had a plan. Do bad for half the life and then for the other half, do good. And, and then he found out, well, wait a minute, I'm not being able to do the good that I want to do. So he, he started to realize, my life might have a different trajectory if it depends on me. Believers whose lives are secured by the blood of Christ have a different destiny. And therefore, we have a different activity. One of the things that's also revealed from this passage is not only that doctrine matters and that doctrine transforms the way in which we ought to live our lives, but that our doctrine reflects the kind of God we serve and the type of life we live because of that doctrine reflects the type of God we serve. We see this in, in verse 5 where it says uh, disobedience, failing to live in a godly way, uh, may cause God to be reviled. They say you need to live this moral and virtuous life that the Word of God might not be reviled. Well, why would it be reviled? 
Because people would look and say, oh, that's what a follower of God looks like. That's what a follower of Christ looks like. That's what a Christian looks like. And what do they do? Say, well, if that's what it looks like, I don't want any part of it. A master is often judged by the kind and the quality of his servants. A savior is often judged by the type and kind of people he redeems. What type of God would people guess you served based on observing you? That's an interesting question. That's a good diagnostic question. If somebody were to take a good hard look at my life, if they were following me around, they're hearing what I said, seeing what I do, what type of God would they guess I serve? And it's very important to understand that who your God is transforms your identity and transforms your activity. By the way, that, that list works from the top down, not the bottom up. And again, sorry, Ralph, your testimony just fits the message. If you try and work up, it doesn't matter. If you try and work to form an identity that's pleasing to God and causes His acceptance, it doesn't work. You can't get good enough. You can't make it. But if God has sent His Son to save us, and that transforms us into a new identity where we were once children of wrath, but now we are adopted sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, sharing in His glory, not based on our merit, but based on what Christ has earned on our behalf. Well, that changes who I am. And that should change what I do. By the way, there, there's two ways you get off. The, the legalist says, you know, what I, does, what I do matters before God because it earns me a right standing with God. And that's false. The licentious, the a way you get off the track on the other way, they say, well, because God saved me, it doesn't really matter what I do. Grace overcomes those things. The book of Titus is very geared towards avoiding both these pitfalls. Because later on, Titus says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's grace that saves us. It's also grace that empowers us. It's one of the reasons why Paul exhorts believers, Hey, you started off by grace. Don't switch over to works now. Continue in grace. Allow grace to sustain you, allow grace to empower you. In all this, we're not saying that works don't matter. We're saying that works don't earn you right standing with God. We're saying that works don't produce grace, but grace does produce works. The grace that brings salvation also equips us to become the people God has called us to be. So there's these exhortations that flow out of sound, healthy doctrine. He, he wants them to ha be equipped to live in a right way. There's also, by the way, something we see in this passage that we begin to see a multiplied effect. We have Paul, who's telling Titus, how to teach. He wants him to teach in a way that promotes healthy, sound doctrine. And he is telling Titus to teach this 
to the members of his congregation in different ages and stages. And then even further on, he, Paul is teaching Titus to teach others, to teach others with the older women. He says they need to be teaching and training the younger women. We begin to see the importance of having right doctrine because it not only helps us, but it helps the body we're a part of to train and equip one another. There are some areas that, that God has gifted and equipped me to help and work with others. There are other areas where I have personal deficiencies and I have to go out and I have to seek somebody. I have to seek wise counsel. I have to meet with somebody and say, what do you do when this happens? I'm at a loss. I've seen you weather some storms. Tell me how you, go, how you got through it. What did you do when this happened in your life? What happens when you lost the job? What happened when your marriage was on the rocks? What happened when the finances fell apart? I need some equipping. I need some help. We're meant to function as a body, equipping one another, encouraging one another, serving one another to the purposes of God. Another thing we see as we look through this passage is that there are different exhortations, maybe necessary at different ages and stages. He has a, a different exhortation for the older men than the younger men, as well as for the older women and the younger women. Now, the, the terminology, especially for the younger folks, is a little bit more broad than we use it now. Although, I, in working with senior adults, I have several people come up to me all the time and just tell me what a wonderful young man I am. I think, I'm not that young. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm old. Um, <laughs> But as, as, as we go through this, you know, th those are kind of the two categories. They didn't have middle age, so it's the, you're either young or you're old. You know, I'm not sure when the transition occurs, but these are large, broad categories he's, he's talking to, and he's covering everybody. He begins with the older men, exhorting them to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, one of the things I, I want you to realize, we talked about this earlier in Titus 1, is that every culture has certain vices that are, they're prone to, that are ingrained into the culture. And then there's also outside forces of ungodliness and wickedness that can affect your culture, can affect your church. One of the things that was mentioned earlier in the book of Titus is the particular vices that those in Crete would be facing from their culture. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, towards the end of the passage, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And as we go through his particular exhortations to the people in this passage, we're going to see that it's counteracting these vices that exist within the culture. There's a tendency in their culture to, to be deceitful, to be morally uncontrolled, to act like an evil beast. There's powerful language. A lazy glutton. They're irresponsible. They avoid their responsibilities. And they're indulgent in how they live. With the older men, they're exhorted to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. They're, they're to resist the temptations to be uncontrolled, to act like a beast, to have no control over themselves. Uh, by the way, we, you know, we have a dog in our house. 
part of our ob objective is to make that animal act less like an animal. <laughs> You know, that's what you try and train the dog to do. That's the, that's the purpose of the training and the equipping. So that he, he doesn't chew up the furniture. So that he doesn't use the bathroom inside. So that he does what you tell him to. So that he is a controlled being. He's not a wild beast. The same way we're to have this moral training. We're to be self-controlled, dignified. We're to act the right way. He also calls them to have a healthy faith, a healthy love, a healthy steadfastness. By the way, as we're going through John 15 in the early service, one of the things Cole has been emphasizing and really shows up in John's teaching and theology is the importance of love. When we look at what type of God we serve and what type of God people would guess we serve based on our looking at our lives, one of the things that's repeated throughout scriptures is love. John says, how can you say you love God when you hate your neighbor who's made in the image of God? Are we living lives of love? Are we exhorting one another to a faith that manifests itself in love and steadfastness? Are we reflecting the character and the nature of our God through our actions? By the way, in the culture of Crete, they had their own gods. Uh, they, there's actually several legends about Zeus that center around the, the island of Crete. I don't know how much you, you know your Greek mythology, but supposedly Zeus was born at Crete in, in a cave there. And there's also some stories of, of Zeus that are uh, not very child-friendly. That he turns himself into a white bull in, in order to seduce and mate with the woman Europa. And, and you think about, well, that's a deceitful God. That's an indulgent God. Is it any wonder that the character and the nature of the people following him reflected the character and the nature of what they considered the highest being? When we look at our God, are we reflecting his character? Are we manifesting truth about him through our lives? He goes on to address the older women. Uh, in, in this passage, you begin to see some of the, the issues that were creeping up. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. There was apparently something threatening that, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. There, there seemed to be a tendency in, in the church at Crete for older women to have sharp tongues, to cut others down. By the, by, the word, by the way, the word used for slanderer in, in this passage is a Greek word, and it's diab... I'm going to need to make sure I pronounce it right. Diabolos. Does that sound familiar? Diabolical is the word we get it. it, it it's also, uh, you know, if you know Spanish, diablo. The accuser. The slanderer. These, these women have a way of cutting people down. What was one of the vices existing in Crete? Liars. They're, they're using their tongue in a way that's deceitful. They're using their tongue in a way that cuts down and undermines other people. They're, they're indulgent. They, 
sit around and drink much wine. They're addicted to it. They're indulgent in it. One of the things we see is that these vices were keeping them from a particular set of virtues that were beneficial not only to them, but to the rest of the body of the church. This is there to teach what is good. If they're slandering, if they're wasting their time being lazy and indulgent, they're not able to teach and work towards what is good. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. One of the things we mentioned earlier as we were going through the responsive reading, it says, uh, what type of state, estate was mankind left in after the fall? I love it. It's simple. It's just, mankind was less in a state of sin and misery. One of the things I, I think that is a, a mistake that we have, and we've really inherited it kind of through Victorian thinking, is in the Victorian age, th there came about this idealized view of the family. Like they, they had this picturesque, pristine view of the family. And one of the things that kind of slipped in there is like this idea that women are naturally angelic and tender and kind-hearted and matronly. They're, they've all got a mother's heart within them. And so they're just naturally kind and submissive to their husband and loving towards their children. Well, that does, doesn't accord with the idea that all of mankind is left in a state of sin and misery. If we're left in a state of sin and misery, even after salvation, that is ne necessary for us to be trained in righteousness and godliness. These older women were to be practical helps and examples for the younger women who were struggling to love their husbands and love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, uh, working at home. When we hear that, we think of, oh, working at home, so they're not allowed in the office. I, I think more what it means is that they need to be diligent at home. They don't need to be neglecting their responsibilities. They need to be submissive to their husbands and to the word that the word of God may not be reviled. Uh, one of the things I've, I've been thinking about a lot lately and, and trying to wrap my mind around, because it's a concept so foreign to the way in which we think, is uh, the nature of hierarchy. And, and the nature of hierarchy means one person is above another. In a democracy, we don't really like that idea, do we? I've just started a, a, a biography of Jonathan Edwards, and at the beginning, it talks about the importance of understanding the society which he grew up in and its nature as a hierarchical society where your place and your position determined the way in which you interacted with everyone. And one of the things I think that we miss out on in a democratic society that holds equality in a high regard is the nature of hierarchy. Because Christianity is inherently hierarchical. There is someone who is above all of us. And it is important and necessary to understand our relationship to Him. 
in the fall of Adam, I believe uh, part of it was a, a failure of his responsibility under God, but it was also his, a failure of responsibility over creation. Man was required to have dominion over the animals. What do you have? You have an animal telling man what to do. He was required to be under the authority of God and submissive to Him. What does He do? He puts Himself over it and says, I'm going to determine what law I'm going to obey. It is extremely important for us to be submitted under God as well as the authorities He has put un over us as well as to be responsible for the things He has put under us. It's very important to know, where has God put me? What is my responsibility to Him? And what is my responsibility to those He has put above me, beside me, and under my authority? This is going to be a reflection of the type of God we serve. He then goes on, and by the way, it, it, it's interesting, he tells him to directly address the two, uh, he tells him what the older men and older women are to be, and he says the older women should be the ones teaching the younger women how to do these things. Uh, Paul's wise enough to know, you know, you can tell them some of these things, but guess what, the older women are going to be a little bit better at equipping the younger women to serve their husbands and sons. Uh, hus serve their husbands and families than you are. They're going to have a little bit more insight into that. He then goes on and says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Are they controlling themselves in a godly way? Are they recognizing the responsibility God has given them over their own bodies? Next week, we're going to look at two other people who are given a responsibility, who are to order their lives in relation to godliness. And we're going to be looking at the way in which Titus is to order his life, as well as slaves to their masters. Getting into a couple more harder issues in that. But as we look back and reflect that doctrine is what equips us to live in a right way to reflect the glory of our God. I want to leave you with a question I received many years ago. The question came from somebody, and I kind of expected the question to go one way. It was talking about persecution and how much your faith costs you. And I thought they were going to ask the question, if you were to die, if Christianity became illegal, that's how the question started. I thought they were going to continue on, would you be willing to die? And I, you know, put on my martyr's coat and was thinking, getting puffed up and, and thinking, well, yes, of course, I would stand for what's right. Uh, but the qu question they ended up asking ended up deflating me. They said, if Christianity were illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Doctrine matters because it affects the way we live. And the way we live is important but because it reflects on the character and the nature of our God. Are you reading Bible? in a way that seeks to find instruction for right living? 
Are you living your life in a way where you're seeking, how can I make much of God? How can I reveal Him in what I say and what I do and in the attitude in which I do it? If Christianity were to be illegal, what type of evidence would they have to bring against me? Saints, our destiny is secure. It's been secured by Christ. Are you living a journey that reflects the grace and glory which we have received in Him? I'm going to close with a simple benediction from the book of Titus. It's one of the best blessings I can give you. Grace be with you all. Amen.